0: Last week we saw how at the very beginning of this letter of Galatians, these Galatian churches that Paul wrote to, he defends his ministry. has to do that immediately. He defends his ministry. I gave you a a little bit of a review of his uh, connection with these churches up in Galatia. He went on his first missionary journey about 48 A.D. And uh, he visited these different churches and God blessed him. And Barnabas was along with him at the time as well. And many of them got saved. And then about two years later, they went on the second missionary journey, but it wasn't Barnabas, this time it was Silas. And while he was there in Galatia, he connected with a a disciple of his, Timothy. And Timothy joined him as well uh, in his ministry from that point on. Shortly after Paul, though, and his team left the Galatian region, the Judaizers, Judaizers moved in. They moved in and they wanted to undermine Paul's teaching regarding this doctrine of how one gets saved and uh, how a person gets saved. And these Judaizers who said they were believers, according to Acts 15.5, they insisted that the Gentile Christians could not really be fully, completely saved unless they also underwent circumcision and kept the Mosaic law, such as its ceremonies, its feasts, and so forth. So these Judaizers, though, who had invaded the Galatian churches after Paul and his team departed, knew that they had to undermine Paul's apostleship and therefore his authority if they were going to get them, that is the Galatian Christians, these new Christians, to yield over to their teaching as they were sharing that they had to be part of the Mosaic system. Obviously, this is what Satan does. He first tries to attack the church from the outside. And by the way, he did that by the other Jews that were not saved, that didn't claim to be uh, Christians and believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They were always attacking Paul, and that's why he suffered so much persecution, found himself often imprisoned, beaten, and so forth. But when Satan can't accomplish the task from the outside attacking the church, then he seeks to join the church. And I mentioned to you last week, you'd be amazed at how many churches... Satan has joined. Anytime you start deviating away from this as the authoritative word of God, that's what happens. That's what happens. And churches all over the place are doing exactly that. So, what they were doing was attempting to destroy this newfound faith that these new Christians, these Gentile Christians had in the Lord Jesus Christ and his all sufficient atoning work that saves them. To the uttermost, as it says over in Hebrews chapter 7, 25, it saves a person forever. You love that? I do. I love that. As I said last Sunday, if he can't destroy the church on the outside, then he puts his effort into joining that church, and that's exactly what he was doing. And that brought us to examine last week Paul's defense of his apostleship and the authority that goes with that apostolic Position and he does so with the very first words he writes to the, in this letter to the believers. He starts out not with a salutation but Paul, an apostle. Not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And then he goes on to say, and the brothers that are with me as well. In other words, he says, my apostolic authority, and he'll develop this in chapter 1, the rest of that in chapter 2, it did not come as a result of the, the pillars in Jerusalem. That's Peter, John, and James, for example. It didn't even come through some agency like the Jerusalem church or the Gentile church up in Antioch. It came directly from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And these men of these brothers of mine that travel with me, and you know them, at least you know Barnabas, you know Silas, you know Timothy and others, they confirmed that, that this apostolic position was directly from God. So that's what we looked at last week. But this morning when we go back to the, to the major point we began last week, just touching on it. Paul defines his message He defends his ministry, but now he defines his message. That's in your outline there if you have it. Verses 3 and 4. But let me read verses 1 through 5 so we get the context of the the whole setting here. Galatians 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God, the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Paul now defines his message in verses 3 and 4. We looked at the first point just briefly last week. God's gospel is the only source of grace and peace. It comes from no other place. God's, not listen, gospel, and he defines what that is here in our text. God's gospel is his only source of grace and peace. Theologians speak of God's common grace and i want to talk about that for just a minute god's common grace god's common grace refers to god's blessings he bestows on all peoples both saved and unsaved whether they're reconciled to him or not for example people today probably enjoy good health they enjoy good health maybe long life they may enjoy having a spouse having children having grandchildren Every day they shovel a lot of food into the mouth, just like we did this morning. And I hope you enjoyed it. I did. I took several. I'm no longer under the law. I took several of those sausages. Amen. Amen. They were good. I really, bless you people who have prepared that. They were really, really good. But you know what? That's part of God's common grace. And people all over the world have enjoyed that. Now, I know some don't have food like we have, but 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 they have. That's part of his common grace. And then God blesses them with many pleasures in life. He sends, for example, a sunshine and his rain on both the just and the unjust, the Bible says. They enjoy the wonders of creation, such as a sunset. Or a sunrise. In fact they just enjoy many many outdoor activities. All of this is God's common grace. Even that they get to breathe in the next breath. And the heart keeps beating. is called God's common grace. And this list of, of, of God's outpouring common grace. Just goes on and on. Really you can't exhaust it. But even as the unsaved person enjoys these outpoured blessings of God's common grace. Day in and day out. And by the way. That's what people are doing today. You and I are doing it, and people outside the walls of this building are doing it, all over Arlington, all over the state of all over the world. They're enjoying and partaking of God's common grace. But even as they do, the Bible says the wrath of God abides on their heads if they do not belong to Him, if they've not received this saving grace that He provides. John 3.36 says that says the wrath of God, even though they're enjoying all that God's provided every single moment of their life, the wrath of God is hanging one heartbeat from them into an eternal hell. In fact, what does God declare through the Apostle Paul in Romans 2, verses 4 through 6? Listen to this. You'll see it probably on the wall behind me here, if you don't have your Bible, Romans 2, 4 through 6. He states that all the common grace that God in His mercy allows the unsaved person to enjoy has one purpose. Just one purpose. And that purpose is to lead them to repent of their sin and turn to Him and be saved. Listen to His words in Romans 2, verses 4 through 6. Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience That, dear ones, is God's common grace and operation in every life. Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. you know what he says? He says, every unsaved person has opened up a savings account. And every single day they make a deposit in that account, as God gives them his common grace, and they continue to spurn that and not repent and turn to his son and get saved. That's what that verse or those verses are speaking about. But I need you to understand this morning the common grace that we talked about here uh, that God bestows on all of his creatures is not the grace that's in our text. Okay? I want you to be aware of that. It's not the grace that's in our text when he writes grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As we noted in our outline here, what he's talking about here in in Galatians 1-3 when he writes that this grace and peace has only one source and that source is God's gospel in his Son. We can rightly call this grace God's saving grace, okay? God's saving grace when He says grace to you and peace. The gospel Paul first preached and taught these Galatian Christians completely transformed their lives. When they opened their heart and received it, and it placed, it placed their faith in the, in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, it instantly turned them from sinners to saints. That's what it did in your life if you're saved and you received it. Suddenly they were no longer Satan's slaves blindly groping through life and spiritual darkness but they were transferred into Christ's kingdom of life and light. And we'll see that a little bit later on. God was no longer a God whose wrath was hanging over their head. Now He had become their loving Heavenly Father. And God the Holy Spirit had poured that great unending river of the love of God within their heart and life as it says in Romans chapter 5, 1 and following. Filling them with God's peace. You see why this grace, this peace, comes from God's gospel, that is, the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul was greatly concerned that they know this saving grace had only that source, the gospel of God that he came to preach them. And these Judaizers who had crept into the churches claiming to be sent by God, who were telling them they weren't really saved unless they also were circumcised and they kept the Mosaic Law. He was very concerned they were sent there by the devil, not by God, who was seeking to pollute and undermine the gospel of God, that is the devil was. Remember last week I shared with you Martin Luther's story? I mean, this man was desperately in search to somehow have all this weight of his sin and his guilt, and he knew the judgment that also would be his because of that. He was searching diligently, madly, if you wildly, if you please, doing everything he could to try to get this load off of him. He did everything that the church leaders told him to do. He, By the way, he wasn't in the Bible at all. In fact, most of them back then weren't. It wasn't available for most, most people. But but, he, but he, he knew that the church had taught, if I die in this condition, though that I am trying to work and receive as much of God's grace as I can, then I understand I'm going to go to purgatory. By the way, that's a Catholic doctrine. That's not a biblical doctrine. Okay, you got that? That's not in the Bible. You don't go to purgatory. You either go directly to heaven or you go to hell. Hades in this sense, before the Lord uh, uh, comes back. But he thought that, He said, okay, I want to get into purgatory, but I also want to get out of there, so I need even much more grace. And so he was trying to do everything he possibly could that the church told him to do in the hopes that he would get out of purgatory at some point. And this was a heavy weight upon this man. When finally he was able to take the Bible and began to study it and got to Galatians. And you remember chapter 3 verse 11. And there God opened his eyes. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. Wait a minute. Stop there. What is, what is God saying there? He is saying if you take the law of God... The moral law of God. You don't even need to go into the ceremonial stuff. Just take the moral of God, and if you tried with everything in you to keep it, you still would be rejected by God. That's what it's saying. Wow! But blessed be God, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Well, obviously it's faith in what? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His atoning work. That's what it is. And that's the gospel that brought this grace, this saving grace and peace to Martin Luther, as it has many of you here. But the Judaizers, they claimed that these Christians were seeking what they were seeking. They also had to be circumcised and keep this law of Moses. Let me share with you two more valuable insights, so directly connected to God's saving grace that comes only through this gospel. Two more observations. First, Peter commanded you and me who are saved to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now that was a command. You've received this grace of salvation, saving grace. Now he says, grow in it. When he, and when, I think Paul must have that in mind, even though he wasn't quoting Peter. He must have that in mind when he addressed these Galatian Christians with those words, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He was talking, okay, you have the grace, saving grace, now grow in that. So the gospel not only introduces you to this grace that saves you, listen to, it is also the soil. It is also the soil of your new life in Christ in which you are to be growing in your life and walk with the Lord. So the question comes, you have to answer it. I have to answer it. Is that happening? Whether you're just saved, saved for 10 years or saved for 50 years or 70, is that happening? Are you growing in God's grace? Is your life changing, causing you to love and worship God more and more? Are you growing in this grace, turning away from living in sin that the Holy Spirit keeps moving in your heart and life? We're glad that He does that speaking and saying, look, you need to make these changes here with my help. Do you find yourself seeking to live for Him rather than continuing to live selfishly doing your thing, which is common for us to do? In other words, are you growing in this grace the gospel of God has brought into your life? Good question. By the way, that's why the study in Galatians. This grace which the Holy Spirit saved you, you live by that way, Now, he says, in the same way, walk. And that's why we're looking here in this book of Galatians. But secondly, 2 Timothy 2.1. Interesting insight here. 2 Timothy 2.1. Remember, he picked up Timothy when he was in the Galatian region. He writes to Timothy. It's just where Paul is going to be taken home to the Lord. And he commands his disciple Timothy... Be strong. This is interesting. Now he says, be strong in the grace. Isn't that good? Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Clearly this saving grace that God has imparted to you can provide you and me with incredible strength, unlimited power, because this grace is in Christ Jesus. You're in Christ Jesus. Christ in you, the hope of glory, that it says behind me. And also... Christ is in you. You can't miss Paul's life. He had persecutions. He had troubles. He had trials. I mean, they were constantly uh, on his heels uh, trying to cause a misery for him. In fact, at his conversion, the Lord Jesus Christ promised him, he said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And certainly... He did. And as the Lord's promise worked itself out in Paul's life and ministry for the Lord, it got so bad that one time he pled with him, Lord, can't you remove this from me? And you know what God said to him. But it's valuable for you and me. Please, I don't like what I'm going through. Remove it from me. And the Lord responded to him with these words that at times you and I humbly need to receive as well. He said, Paul... My grace, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected, developed, matured in weakness. What did he say? Talking about grace to you and peace from God the Father and Lord Jesus. What did he just say? He said, Paul in your weakness, in your trial, in the things that you're dealing with that you want me to remove. He said, I am manifesting myself. I am manifesting myself as well as my workings in and through your very life. Body, if you please, as well. Amazing. Growing in this grace and knowledge. So God's gospel... Is his only source of this saving grace and peace. We didn't talk a lot about peace, but having peace with God is a wonderful thing, I'll tell you. You know, we struggle with sin day in, day out. We struggle with the fallenness of our bodies. We struggle with the wicked enemy. We struggle with this fallen, evil world. And yet to have that absolute peace that, hey, I am forgiven. I am redeemed. I belong to the Lord. I am precious in his sight and I'm going to make it all the way home. Isn't that good? The Bible, as I've said many times, I love how God concludes His love book to you. He talks about our home there in Revelation 21 and 22. Well, that brings us to the next part as Paul defines his message. Paul states the nature of Christ's death. Now he's going to state to them right out the gates the nature of Christ's death. Verses 3 and 4. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ Who gave himself for our sins. What depth of theology are in those words? We sing a hymn and we ask the question that's so important and it gives the answer. Here's the hymn What can wash away my sins? Finish it. Amen. That sounds like confusion here. (laughs) What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Wow. That's what happened to Martin Luther. That's what happened to me. That's what happened to many of you as well. My. Nothing, absolutely nothing can remove your sin except the self sacrifice of jesus christ the son of god who deliberately left the glories of heaven where he eternally pre-existed and he came to this earth being conceived in the virgin mary's womb and by his physical birth he received a physical body becoming fully god always fully god but becoming fully man as well yet without sin but notice how Paul begins by stating the nature of Christ's death as he begins his letter to these Galatian Christians. He writes concerning the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins. You can't miss the great teaching, the great doctrine in the Bible of what? Substitution, can you? Substitution. Who gave Himself for our sins. God's law, the moral mosaic law of God, condemns all sinners, declaring them to be cursed, damned, separated from an absolute holy God. As I said, Martin Luther began to realize even if he could try his best to keep all the law, he still would be damned and condemned to go to hell. You see, the price for our sins is the penalty of God's law. The soul that sins must die. God is a holy God and cannot condone or excuse sin one iota. And that's where the world is today. They think somehow God can and will. Wrong. It must be put away before He can accept you, the sinner. But God is also a just God. And for sin to be put away, the penalty must be exacted in full. But the penalty was this. Eternal death. Eternal separation from God. A penalty neither you nor I could ever pay. That's why sinners end up in hell, the lake of fire, for all eternity. And it breaks our heart when somebody moves all the way through life, especially someone we know and love, goes all the way through life, breathes their last, and completely rejected and turned down this provision, this substitution that God made for them. I mean, that's forever separated from God. God. Peter describes this incredible exchange. By the way, substitution suggests a trade, an exchange. <laughs> what an what a trade! What an exchange! First Peter two twenty four says this. Peter describes the exchange. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. There you go. He took all your and my sins. You see why the gospel, God's gospel, is the only source of grace, saving grace and peace? He took all, not part, all of your and my sin. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. This really shows the trade-off, the exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, that's God, the first person of the triune Godhead, He made Him, Jesus Christ, His Son, the one who came being fully God, now fully man, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Now here comes the trade. Here comes the exchange. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Wow! You gotta be Pentecostal. Get up and jump and shout and praise the Lord for that. He took all of your sins and then He gives you all His righteousness. His life. What a exchange. He takes upon Himself and bears all your penalty before a holy, righteous God that you were to bear. And He does so by taking your place. And when Jesus offered to take your and my place, God transferred all your and my sin upon Him. Listen to me. He did not become a sinner. You've got to get that down. That would be blasphemy. He was perfectly the sinless Holy Son of God. But God placed your, my sin upon Him. And He bore it. And then God poured out all our deserved judgment or punishment upon Him. Don't miss those words. He gave Himself that substitution. Out of His great and perfect love for His Father... And out of his everlasting love for you, he willingly, he voluntarily came to be our substitute and pay this unimaginable costly price so as to save you and me and reconcile us back to God. And it was the gospel of God that brought you this saving grace and peace through our Lord, our God and Father, and Lord Jesus Christ. You added nothing to that. Do you understand? That's what the Galatian Christians were struggling with. Because they're saying, no, no, you have to also do this. By the way, I enjoyed eating pork this morning. I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. Doesn't mean I get to deliberately go out and sin. That would be wrong. But I'm under grace. I add nothing to my salvation. Jesus paid it all, all to Him. I owe. Amen? By the way, the nature of this substitutionary... Exchange we're talking about here God talked about that over 2,500 years ago not just 2,000 years ago 2,500 years ago look with me at Isaiah 53 verses 5 and 6 and most of you know it quite well it'll be on the wall behind me I think Isaiah 53 verses 5 and 6 and notice the exchange the substitution but he was pierced through for Our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we're healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. There you are. That's what everybody out there dealing with God's common grace is doing. They're not turning to God in repentance and turning to this wonderful gift of salvation in His Son, the gospel, the glorious gospel. No, they've turned to their own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Dear ones, that is substitution. I wouldn't be surprised but what Paul also taught this to these Galatian believers when he was there with them, since he had and knew his Old Testament quite well. That brings us to my next point, though. Paul states the purpose of Christ's death. The nature of his death is substitution. Now what about the purpose? Oh, this is wonderful. I, 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 we could dig in this for a long time to come. But then I need Hans to get back up here and preach, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. Verse 4, the middle of the verse. Who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. Remember what I talked about in Galatians chapter 5? We live by Christ. That's salvation. And now we walk by Christ. That's what this is talking about. And even more than that. He states the purpose of Christ's death. If the nature of Christ's death was sacrificial, the purpose of His death was a rescue operation. It was a rescue operation. Not only were we born in sin, we are slaves to sin. And our slave master is none other than Satan who previous, presently controls this world system that Paul here describes in Galatians 1 4. He calls it this present evil age. And believe me, that's what it is. When Paul describes this present age as being evil, he uses the word "Poneros." You know what an English word comes out of that? Pernicious. Pernicious. In other words, this present evil age under Satan's control is not content to perish in its own corruption. No, it must bring you down with it. And that's why he sent these Judaizers to bring these new Christians down with this evil age. After all, Satan's not called destroyer, murderer for nothing. So they were a part, these Judaizers of this present evil age. And they were not content with dragging down their own devotees to destruction. They purposed to do the same with these Galatian Christians as well. To bring this picture into sharp focus, let's use Paul. He was called Saul of Tarsus. Man, he was part of... He was Satan's number one man. He was was a key man in this present evil age. He was going around blaspheming Jesus Christ, going after anybody who had become a Christian, who had turned to Christ, and then God steps right in the middle of his life, doesn't He? And wonderfully delivers him. No longer would he be Satan's servant. He would be the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus came and rescued him. Rescued him out of this present evil age let's look at three passages of scripture that give us insight into this present evil age and the Lord's rescue of us out of it now we're not going to exhaust him but man they're worth they are really worth spending time with the first one I want to share with you and you can look in your Bible or behind me on the wall Acts 26 15 through 18 Acts 26 15 through 18 this is Paul's conversion story but I'll tell you great insights about this present evil age that you and I are still in. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you and to appoint you as a minister and a witness not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Now here it is. This present evil age and how God rescued him and he rescued those Galatian believers to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light. Let's stop there. To open their eyes. It is staggering and glorious what you and I know. Why do I say that? You know, uh, the, the world out there blind believes in evolution. Okay, that's how blind they are. Doesn't matter that there's order and design. Doesn't mind that it matter that God gives evidence of His presence and the glory of His powers. Or they're absolutely blind, and if they don't believe that, okay, I believe in the God, but He's somewhere up there. I don't know what He's like, and then they try to make Him into their own image, don't they? Stone blind. To open our eyes. And not only do we know this God, but we also know that He's revealed Himself to us in the Scriptures. We know who He is, what He's like, and so Not only that, He has become our God, our Heavenly Father. The Lord Jesus Christ has become your and my Savior and Lord. Why? Because God opened our eyes. Now you get a little bit of an idea what this present evil age is all about. That's where you were. That's where most of the people out there are. So that they may turn from darkness to light I don't like being blind I guess if I'm going to lose one of my senses let it be my hearing and I don't even want that but I really don't want to be blind that's really difficult isn't it but here they are stone blind groping their way through life trying to make the best of it all as best they know how and so forth they don't even have a clue where this is all going But we do because God has turned us from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. They don't even know that they're a slave to Him. You're either a slave to Satan or you're a slave to God. You know that, don't you? Jesus said that in John 8. You're either God's slave or you're Satan's slave. One of the two. There's no middle ground there. That they may receive the forgiveness of sins... And an inheritance. I like that. You know why? He says, okay, this is the present evil age we're talking about, and Paul's describing here, the Lord's describing to him. But you know what? He says, there is a new age coming, and I'm not talking about government here. I'm talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, that glorious age that's going to come, and that is your inheritance. And we know that. Why? Because we have the last chapter, don't we? We know what God's doing. We know how it's going to all work out, and so we rejoice in that. He's received the forgiveness of sins, and boy how we are elated with that, and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me, set apart, living for him. That's that grace in operation, walking by the Spirit. Let's look at another one quickly. Colossians 1:12 through 14. Colossians 1, 12-14. Paul, uh, cutting right into the middle of one of his long sentences there, says, giving thanks to the Father, who's qualified us to share in the inheritance. There's that word inheritance there. That's not something that you already possess. Maybe in part you do. This is something you, you and I are going to get later on. The glorious age to come versus this present evil age. Your inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us. There it is. There's that word. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. You know, it's presently a spiritual kingdom, but it's going to be a literal kingdom, a glorious literal kingdom when our Lord comes back and establishes his reign over the whole world. Amazing another one 2 Peter 1.4 you should remember this for when Hans and I took you through the book of 2 Peter 2 Peter 1.4 and I want to give a little bit of thought to that so let's look at that one for by these for by these and these means God's own glory and excellence he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them watch this now So that by them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. That's salvation. That's the gospel that brings saving grace and peace. You become partakers of the divine nature. Here it is. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Don't you love it? He says, you've escaped it. Oh, you're still in it. I mean, you're still in this world Uh, 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 that he he mentions here, the uh, uh, um, uh, present evil age. You're still in it, but you've escaped it. Amazing. And how do you overcome? Well, by his precious and magnificent promises, just how you got saved. By the way, since Jesus willingly gave himself for your sins so that he might rescue you from the present evil age, if you placed your faith in him, to save you and rescue, you, then listen to what He now says to you. This is good. This is John 17, 14-17. You don't have it in your outline, so if you want it, you're going to have to write it down. John 17, 14-17. This is what Jesus says to you and to me as He did to those disciples. Judas had already been gone. He's praying to the Father. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them, because they are not of this world. There it is. They are not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Remember this evil age? Satan, the prince of the power of the air right now, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world as I am not of the world. And then he tells how we overcome. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's how we grow in this grace. Walk by the Spirit. And that brings us to the fourth point. Paul states the origin of Christ's death. The origin. Very quickly in the last part of verse 4, according to the will of our God and Father. That explanatory clause forces you and me to think through two critical words, whether you know it or not. Sovereignty and love. Now, if you don't have the Bible, but you have the history here, you say, well, of course. I believe that Jesus was a very, very incredibly good man. I guess I could even believe that he worked and did miracles. But still, he was a man. And then you had the powers that be. You had the, the leadership, the governors and so forth, and the kings that Rome had set up in their power. And then you also had the power of the Jewish religious leaders that controlled everything. So am I surprised that they were easily apprehending him and that they nailed him to a cross? Not at all. You'd almost expect that because he got into their territory. Happens all the time. But that's not what we're taught here, are we? In here in this, according to the will of our God and Father. When you don't know God, it's no wonder that becomes your deduction when you weigh out the information you have to work with. But God has spoken and revealed to you and me in His written word to those whom His Son rescued from this present evil age. And as Peter preached to them, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there in Jerusalem, and that's found in Acts 2, verses 23 and 24. We don't need to go into it, but he said, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. But God raised Him up from, again, putting an end to the agony of death since it is impossible for him to be held in its power. The origin of Christ's death was a will of God our Father. Designed even in eternity past. My. It goes all the way back into eternity past before he even created this earth or you and me upon it. And that brings us to that other critical word. Love. You might say, why? 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 Love. And you know the verse so well. So say it with me. King James only okay. (laughs) For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the origin of Christ's death here. And that brings us to Paul Defining his message next. Paul defines his message. God's gospel is his only source of grace and peace, and that gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ's death in your my behalf. He willingly gave himself as a sacrifice, as a substitute. The nature of his death was that he did become our substitute. He took our place, bore all our sins, and suffered all our deserved punishment. And God in turn gave us his righteousness, his life it really is so great a salvation what was the purpose of his death to rescue us from this present evil age that's what's going on right now making us his very own who will be with him and reign with him in the glorious age to come and the origin of Christ's death was strictly the decreed will of God Who will bring it all to pass because he is sovereign God and fulfills all things, even using Satan and wicked, rebellious man to accomplish his purposes. And that brings us to the final part. Paul declares his motive. Paul declares his motive in verse 5. Profound. Profound. Right out the gates, as I said, as he writes these. Galatian believers, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. The heartbeat of Paul's life was the glory of God. Would you agree with that? That was the heartbeat of this man's life. The glory of God. He's the one that wrote to the Corinthian church, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, what? Do all to the glory of God, didn't he? He's the one that said, Don't you know that your body, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. His whole life was the glory of God. Amazing. Even in a sense it is the glory of God, Paul has a mind, I think, when he concludes this letter to the Galatian believers. He says, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through whom or through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That, I would say, is living for the glory of God. That brings me to the last point, though. Only grace salvation glorifies God. Only grace salvation glorifies God. This is why Paul concludes his salutation to these Galatian Christians with those words in verse 5, to whom Be the glory forevermore. Amen. Let's consider Paul's comprehensive development of this salvation in verses 1 through 5. See, that's in a nutshell there. They write to the Galatian believers. But my, oh my, he takes the book of Romans from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11 to develop this salvation the gospel of God, which is the power of God unto salvation, as he said in Romans chapter 1. But let's consider that. He goes all the way and he develops it in detail, and I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. I know you're so dependent on what's going to come on the wall behind me. We call it the handwriting on the wall. You see, these are the Paul's expansion of Galatians 1, verses 1 through 5. The first five verses there. Those 11 chapters of Romans. But notice how he concludes with this praise in verses 33 through 36 of chapter 11. To whom be the glory forevermore, he says in Galatians 1, 5. Now he's developed the salvation in detail. And he bursts out, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. We sang about that, by the way, this morning. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? Here we go. For from Him and to Him I'm sorry, and through Him. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to Him be the glory forevermore amen i want you to see that the glory of god is always the issue the glory of god is always the issue For those who are fully trusting Jesus Christ as their substitute, who gave Himself for their sins and has and is rescuing them from this present evil age, you are glorifying God as vessels of honor, sanctified, useful for the Master, prepared to every good work, and you will be in the kingdom living and reigning with Him. For those... Who choose not to place their faith in Jesus Christ and receive this grace, salvation He has provided for them, God has this to say to them. This is God's words to them, and you might be one of them, I don't know. But they're all over outside the church for sure, all over the world. Here's what He has to say to them in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Because the Lord came and humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, for this reason also, God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name, we sing that this morning, the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every knee knee will bow of those who are in heaven redeemed saints already gone home and on the earth that's you and me if he should come now and under the earth that's those who died probably in Hades and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord why to the glory of God wow God says, I will be glorified. It's my creation. It's my world. Every individual I allow to be born, conceived and born, and live, they, each one, will glorify me. Some, throughout all eternity, in my kingdom, in my presence, blessed beyond words. But the Mass will find themselves glorifying God eternally in hell the lake of fire. Why? Because God says to the praise of my glory. Amen. To the glory of God the Father. How I thank you Lord that you did a work of grace in my heart and life. I thank you for so many of these dear brothers and sisters that I've known known for years that in most cases I would say they too can testify with me. That this so great a salvation, this gospel of God that brings both uh, peace and salvation, they've experienced. But Father, we're burdened about the ones that still are outside that fold, and we would pray that the common grace that they experience every day at your hand would cause them to come to repentance, cause them to come to know you. And as we go through our trials and struggles, Lord, that they may see that grace work manifesting your presence, manifesting your works in our lives, and that would bring them to repentance as well. And then, Father, there's this whole issue of us. You have saved us from this present evil age, and we are presently being saved from it. May you teach us to walk more and more by the Spirit instead of by the flesh. And we will praise you for this. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen.